Welcome, listeners of Illusion to Temporal Discussion, the episode-by-episode nightmare retrospective podcast. I'm Martin Harder, and I never was very good at manoeuvring. And I'm Martin Ogoni, and I was always better than Mr. H at doing podcasts. Today we'll be looking at Series 4, Episode 9. This infamous episode was originally broadcast on November the 2nd, 1990. A Little Time by the Beautiful Self was still at number one. And Jerry Zucker's supernatural romance, comedy, horror, thriller, Ghost remained the most viewed film in the UK cinemas. So a little like Nightmare throughout Season 4. Nothing was really changing from week to week. So let's just move on. And joining us today, we have Patreon supporter and original editor of the iShield fanzine, Paul McIntosh. Hello, nice to be here. So this is usually the point where we ask our guests what nightmare means to them. But in your case, I think we've got several documents showing what nightmare means to you, really, haven't we? Unfortunately, most of those documents were written when I was in my um, in my teens. So they're not the most um, elegantly written. But um, yeah, I've very much a lifelong nightmare fan. Sometimes, given that it's a, a program you're watching during your teens, maybe that actually gives you a more honest view of how you felt about it when it really mattered. I think so. It's a bit like reading an old diary where you get older and you get a better perspective on everything in life but it is interesting to look back and see how i was taking it all in at the time and exactly i was i was much friendlier to season four than than perhaps um <laughs> perhaps it deserved i just gotta grab something because I, I think i told you about this but i don't think i actually showed you one second this is intriguing thankfully it does appear that he has got his trousers on so um we're <laughs> Don't have to worry too much <laughs> about that. Reassure me on the first fight of concern I had. Mm, yes, yes. I, I, I tend to be a little less discreet than you. <laughs> <laughs> so this is your entire contribution to the ice oh, shield wow. in oh. book form. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but this is something that will be given away as part of our big competition prize. But if you like, I can get a copy printed for you as well. I would love that. It looks lovely. I, I know you sent me a kind of a... a draft version of what it was going to look like but that mm. that does look really nice it looks very glossy doesn't it it's uh, rather uh, very professional yeah unlike anything we've ever done on the podcast before <laughs> <laughs> this is very true it's all because of the host you know i mean i, I, mean, I, I keep making this point if, if if someone else with experience of making the podcast took over the show it would go so much more smoothly. I mean, not mentioning any names, of course. Um, <laughs> I think that's very harsh. I've only been here five minutes. Yes, you. It was you I was talking about, of course. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. The Beautiful South. They're one of those bands where I, I, I don't quite know how they got so huge. They just seem to just be there. And when you look back at their discography, they sold zillions of albums, and I, I don't quite know how it happened. You're very brave bad-mouthing The Beautiful South on my podcast. Oh, I wasn't bad mouthing them. I do. I, I know. Do like I'm, a only, lot of their songs, I'm only but, joking. I'm just joking. I, I, I think that they just they kind of crept up on me. I didn't realise that there was. It's less of a thing now. I think, but there used to be a thing of singles bands and albums bands, and I think they were largely the the latter. Yeah, it wasn't really until "Don't Marry Her" that a lot of people actually even knew who the Beautiful South were. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love Paul Heaton though. I think he's um. He's written some of the, the all-time greats. Nobody else could write a song about a table and actually make it worth listening to. <laughs> Temporal, discussion. Temporal Discussion. Bringing you the latest news from 1990. This week in 1990, as a result of massive losses, British Satellite Broadcasting and Sky Television PLC merged to establish B-Sky B on this day. 
um, the, it was almost a serial joke, that, uh, it was a stock joke of the late 1980s, that everybody was making fun of the fact that nobody had a satellite dish. Mm. Um, so there was, um, I remember um, a sketch show, uh, I think it was called On the Waterfront, it was a Saturday morning sketch show for kids. Um, they did um, uh, a mock-up of Challenge Annika, where her big challenge is to find a house with an actual satellite dish on the front of it. Is that because it becomes such a culture to say nobody watches Sky, nobody watches BSB. But sadly, they merged and it saved both of them. It later developed to become the largest provider of digital paid television in the UK and the most influential, more worryingly. Sky Italia and uh, Sky Deutschland were purchased in 2014 and the United Company was then renamed Sky PLC. The satellite game, a sci-fi game show produced by our own Tim Child and Broadsword Television, was one of the merger's casualties. But we'll go into more detail about that in a future podcast. But this was a pretty deadly moment for broadcasting, as far as I'm concerned. It made Rupert Murdoch much more powerful than ever, and we're still living with the consequences of that today. And the USA even more so, if it hadn't been for that merger, things like Fox News Channel would never have existed. Oh, we are in the wrong parallel universe. (laughs) (laughs) And now time turns. The recording light burns. Time out is gone. The podcast is on. Welcome to what we call the greater game of luck and glory. A simple matter of defeat the dungeon or die trying. All an illusion, of course. So let's find out who is currently not risking life and limb in the attempt. A pickle, the book of quests, if you please. But of course, Master. Team in quest are Andrew, Richard and Andrew. Not to forget their dungeoneer, Simon. The challenge is from Wales, and they're trying to recover the sword. Length in adventure, 23 minutes. Currently in level two, in the company of Gundrada. Can't say I envy them, Master. She's so pushy. Ah, Welsh wizardry and Celtic cunning. But will it be enough, we ask ourselves? Somehow I doubt it. But then, who can say? Instead, let's now discover. Game on! When I hear Treyguard saying, somehow I doubt it, after he's asked um, whether these could be the potential winners, these days I just think, what a giveaway. But no matter what else happens, we can say now, for the benefit of the listeners, without going into any details, this is one of the most famous episodes ever. Even remembered by a lot of people who aren't actually fans of the series. It's a bit like describing a, a football match with one incredible incident in it and then nothing else happened for the rest of the 90 minutes. Yeah. Yes, there is an element of that, I'm afraid. Um, one amazing goal. One amazing own goal, perhaps. But uh, even so, it, it does seem to make it into an awful lot of uh, mini documentaries uh, about Nightmare. <laughs> you can be sure that it's most of them are going to have this particular moment in it. Morning, team. A goblin hunting party has crossed Simon's trail. Oh, goody goblins. Just the sort of exercise a girl needs. Having been reintroduced to the team by Pickle, we pick up immediately where the previous episode left off. The goblins have closed in on Simon and Gundrada in one of Series 4's many nondescript castle locations and are ready to pounce. I say many nondescript castle locations. It's actually like three castle locations, just coloured slightly differently. Not even coloured differently, just got some of the features edited out. You go ahead, Simon, and I'll carve up their advanced guard. They'd have lunch or something. 
Simon, you're in a room with, uh, sort of, inside of a castle, there's, uh, some steps going up and a doorway to the far left. There's a table with some food on it, I think. The small table does indeed hold some food, a roast chicken, which gets knapsacked and the team move on as the goblin horn sounds again. And that's the last we see of Gundrada in this quest, um, which is a pretty shallow contribution from her, really, but... Even she was more useful here than Melisandre was on her previous couple of appearances. I did quite enjoy the scene in the previous, I know you've already covered this, but the um, air draw in the letters for Slash, the sword. By the standards of this series, it was quite a sort of funny moment. Yeah, It was different. It was certainly different. Those sort of incidents, particularly with this quest, created this vibe that it was a barely interactive comedy drama at points. And Simon, I don't really think, had any major decisions to make until... Um, that's exactly what we were saying in the last, <laughs> yeah. the last podcast. Yeah, he's um, it's it's very passive. I don't really blame Tim Child for that particularly. I blame CITV because the controllers there were constantly pushing for things to be sped up. Because they were doing that, they kept on having to remove things where the team are actually making decisions. It must have been a difficult position for Tim Child and the, and the team to be in because they were ostensibly having to make a program worse and knew they were doing it, but had to act as though it was for the good of the program. They were making the program into something it wasn't. I don't necessarily have a problem with um, turning into a drama, because we watch dramas all the time. Drama is is a a legitimate form of entertainment. But that is what Nightmare's meant to be. If you're going to make a drama, make a drama. Go somewhere else and make a drama. This is supposed to be interactive fiction, and it was becoming less and less so. Take a step backwards. Turn a little bit to your left. Well, quickly escape Walk while you may. Quick. Now hold up the eye shield. Stop. Where am I? You're in a large room. There's a seems like a monk sitting down by a table, counting something, or playing cards. And there's a couple of other interesting objects around the room, which I don't know what they are. There's a exit. Ah. Oh, Come, young fellow, sit down and join me. Surely you will not refuse a game of chance. Simon has found his way to the second pillory room of level two. In place of Merlin, though, we have Brother Mace sitting at a table, shuffling a deck of cards. After establishing that Simon doesn't speak Latin, Mace introduces himself and then begins drawing cards. This is at least a new scene at this point. I'm going to, I'm going to say in, uh, in favour of this one. It's, it's actually not a particularly bad scene. Mm. Um, and at least it's a breath of fresh air after so many scenes with Merlin. But sadly, it actually gets recycled for the penultimate episode of the season, which for me is the all-time stinker episode, for reasons I won't go into here. On the plus side, Mace is always likeable. Um, Michael Kewell is always a class act. I really love his over-pronunciation of last syllables. Young Voyager. Now then, at the game, I have a king, and you have an ace. I have two, and you have... Dear, another ace. It looks as though you may win, except except that there are 53 cards in the pack. What does that mean, young Simon? There's only 52 cards in the pack. There's only 52 cards in the pack. There's only 52 cards in the pack of cards. But mine has 53, and what does this tell you, my younger voyager? There's an extra card. There's an extra card. Extra card in the pack. Well, 
Excellent, simplissimus, but excellent. Tell me the name of that extra card. Joker. Joker. One thing I should say is when identifying the Joker card these days, I could almost hear Simon saying in an Australian mock US accent, why so serious? Michael Keel is so good at the, the ad-libs and, the, and just making the scene feel more natural than just a scripted scene. Just the little things like when they labour to make in the point that there's an extra card in the pack and it's the Joker. It, it's, is it simplissimus but excellent? It, it sort of says it as, you know, he's, he's observing the fact that they really haven't had to make much of a stretch, but I did enjoy it. Difficulty level is something that I think is really striking from this because he's led by the hand to identifying the Joker. And then I know we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but soon after this, there is this sort of reverse questions, Ides of March, March of Ides scene, which is considerably more difficult. It's much, much more confusing for a team coming up uh, when they're in the same room and suddenly Merlin is back there. There really is only one possible answer to this, unless you're going to say Mr. Bun the Baker. (laughs) So it's it's too easy. Uh, As long as you know a deck of cards, you can't really get this one wrong. You're right, that's not fair. And when you add this to getting no questions from Oakley and also getting full and comprehensive advice from him, in response to answering no questions and then being kind of led by the hand by Pickle, Fatilla, Gundrada up to this point. Literally even through the Corridor of Blades. Yeah, It's amazing to think that this was actually being done. This this really easy ride was being given to one of the oldest teams that had ever actually taken part in Nightmare. They're clearly on the brink of about 14 years old um, and they're getting all this extra help, um, which a lot of younger and less... um, well, I say less experienced teams, I'm more than experienced, really. But a lot of younger teams weren't getting that help. It makes you think, in a way, is what's coming up just like a single major thing of momentary stupidity? Or were they really that bad that they rejigged the entire thing around? <laughs> them to lead them by the hand so they could get as much television out of them as possible. I very much doubt that because they're not much fun to watch, um, this team. No offence to them, but they do all speak in a very, very flat monotone, which becomes rather tiresome after a few minutes. I don't think there's um, there's much danger that, um, of, of Tim Child saying, you know what, these guys just shine. The camera <laughs> loves them. Let's get as much of them into this as we possibly can. No, no, no. All due respect to Simon and the lads, they're a bit monotonous, so uh, no, I don't think Tim would have made a decision like that. As somebody with two failed auditions in my history, it was quite galling when you would see teams like that because not only were they quite sort of flat, and and as you say, with all due respect, they are just children, but they also didn't really have a lot of chemistry as such. It, they were quite. They were one of those teams that was very heavily dominated by one guider. With you, hundred percent though. Um, it's it's not the worst quest to watch. It's not the worst source of entertainment you're going to get. Um, but it's not really um, interactive fiction. This one, it's it's very much somebody just uh, somebody who hasn't learned the scripts, just getting guided through it by an awful lot of prompting. A brief discussion amongst the advisors leads them to the conclusion that there should be only fifty-two cards in a deck and not fifty-three, which tells them there's a Joker in the pack. Because the team has spotted this, Mace offers the Joker card to Simon. He warns him that the card can only be played once. I'm assuming the idea was that this would somehow summon Motley. Yes. At some point. 
yeah, so it's not. I think everybody's probably guessed that anyway. Um, yeah, even if they don't actually remember it, it does get the payoff. Payoff in inverted commas um, in a later episode when the scenario is recycled. But it, it, it honestly, when Motley is summoned, it is the most obnoxious scene in Nightmare History. <laughs> it's it's actually worse than the door spell scene. It is mm. so bad. And it's one of the key reasons why I hate Motley so much. One of the Andrews instructs Simon to sidestep left before Richard corrects him by telling Simon to go right instead. Important bit, that. Yes, uh, and rather... Uh, rather foreshadowing. If only they just let him get this bad bit of direction out of his system here. Maybe in the next room. Oh, dear. What a pity. Mm. Never mind. Simon, stop. Where am I? You're in a grey room which has two doors at the end of it. It is, it is a... Warning team, nothing here is stable. Proceed with care, but don't delay! Now we've come to the part you've all been waiting for. Just in case you somehow don't know, Simon has entered the block and tackle chamber. The moment Treyguard finishes speaking, the blocks begin sliding across the room and the floor to Simon's immediate left falls away. There's nothing there now except a large black pit, but it should be easy to avoid as long as the advisors don't tell him to do something incredibly ridiculous such a sidestep into his left. <laughs> oh, yeah, but some ominous music though, that, I think. Yeah, I, I think so, yeah. Nothing here is stable. Honestly, it hurts. After 30 plus years and so many rewatches of this moment, it still actually hurts. You find yourself wondering what it must be like to have been that team and, and how that must have affected their friendship dynamic for, for such a long time afterwards. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's funny you say that. Um, the scene provokes a lot of laughter, especially among non-fans. Um, but I think among fans of the series, the laughter is as much to soften the pain. <laughs> <laughs> it's as much to um, soften the pain as, as it is because it's objectively a hilarious blunder. It still hurts to see it because it, it, it turns Nightmare's greatest gift, the tension of possible death at any moment, into something comedic. It's, it's too much. <laughs> it's, just, 
it's it, it actually hurts the series itself in a strange way. When the enormity of what he's done sinks in, Andrew One just kind of slams <sighs> the end of his pencil down onto the paper, furiously writes something, which I can only imagine is the word fuck, yeah. and then scribbles <laughs> it out. <laughs> You'd get a fortune if you could find that piece of paper, I think. Um, <laughs> I quite, you know, it's, it's funny Paul mentioned this a moment ago about the, did this damage the friendship between the boys. According to some rumours, Andrew One actually got hit by one of his teammates afterwards. Oh, is this the Black Eye incident? That's one version of it. There's a few different um, teams that that's been um, ascribed to. But this is one of them. I get the feeling it probably isn't true, actually, about this one, but it probably should be. One observation about this room that... Obviously, it's not the moment, but shortly after the fall into the pit, I did really like the animation and the sound effects of the final dregs of the life force sort of coming in through the door. It was slightly different to the way they've done it in other episodes, but it just looked and sounded really good. You were never very good at manoeuvring, were you? Well, I think I better manoeuvre for you. Spellcasting! D-I-S-M-I-S. Farewell, Andrew, Richard, Simon, and Andrew. Your journey promised much, but you are riding for a fall. The path behind you leads west and hence to Wales. So, goodbye. Take me down to the grass by the castle, cause we died when our quest proved too much hassle. Oh, aren't you pleased That's the end of Simon's quest. Was it the most ridiculous blunder in the history of the show? Most likely. But do the team deserve all the negativity they've received over the years as a result? No. Um, You might say they deserve a bit of negativity just because they got such an easy ride. They didn't really have any control over that, though. Treyguard, even here, says the team were never very good at manoeuvring. But as I mentioned in the last podcast... I don't really see much evidence of that outside of the last two chambers. I think it's more true of our next team than anything else. It would certainly be true of the next team. I think Simon's supposed weight issues seem to have been exaggerated by a long way as well. The team are a little monotonous to listen to, as, as I've mentioned. Um, I wouldn't say they were stupid or objectionable in any other sense, though. Um, that's one of the reasons why the comedy effect of the death is so marked. They seemed a little bit mechanical, but not foolish in any particular way. And then they suddenly go and do something like that. They were unremarkable, but they hadn't actually played badly. They weren't much fun to watch, uh, but in the call of day, they weren't bad at dungeoneering. Probably they got about as far as they deserved. And if that means they got some way past level one, they can't be all bad. But dear, oh dear, how rarely people notice their good points, because what good things they did were completely blotted out by infamy of the death scene. It's a shame it was quite as silly as it came about, because it devalues just how impressive the block and tackle can be. Plus also... They've enhanced the effects of when a dungeoneer is falling in this season with arms now flailing around, which looks much more convincing than them just standing root solid and sliding off the screen as they were doing in seasons two and three. Once they established that the quest had ended, they must have gone back and filmed a death sequence with him stepping off of a platform or something to get that effect. It struck me that um, there are a few things in this series where it looks like they've asked the team to participate in a few post-production things that they might not have done previously because I think Pickle reading the, the book of quests looks to me like that's been filmed after they've finished recording the quest. and. That therefore means, for example, Simon's team, they had to sit there after that had happened 
and have mm. Pickle giving them a progress report as though there was still a chance. <laughs> Excruciating idea, isn't it? I am colourblind, so I'm willing to accept if this is my error on this, but it, it also struck me that the scene where he's told to sidestep left and then it cuts back to Simon it looks to me like his t-shirt has gone from red to pink, but that might just be me. And that made me think that that might be a post-production thing. I think that may be because of the animation. Sometimes what they have to do, they have to sort of lower the resolution. We're talking about computers from 1990 here, let's yeah. put together. The cutting edge of technology at that point was a 486 IBM compatible PC. Trying to keep the animation moving smoothly means you've got to lower the resolution because otherwise the memory runs out and it sort of turns into a sort of a, not even a flip book, just a one photograph after the next. 486 would have been bleeding edge. They would have been working with 386s at that point. Was that was it the 386? I don't remember. I remember my dad had a job at Glasgow University, and one of the perks of that job was that they always had old computers that they would give out to uh, professors who wanted them. We had a 286 we'd been given in 1990, which uh, had a CGA graphics card. Oh, oh, I hope you like purple. <laughs> I wasn't quite as badly affected by the purple on Nightmare that season, precisely because the 286 was giving me such a such a softening uh, impact effects i'm playing what was it called uh digger uh digger. that's the one <laughs> the one with the popcorn song i was playing that three or four hours a day but it was in purple rather than brown and green I apologise because the Intel 486 microprocessor was introduced in 1989. <laughs> nah, 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 nah. Got you again. <laughs> the pension processor was about to arrive a couple of years later. So that really did make the 486 look deeply embarrassing. I remember the hype behind the Pentium. It was a big step forward in processors, but um, I'm getting a bit carried away. The Pentium 2 um, was a, a much bigger step forward. Paul, what did you use to write the iShield? It wasn't even my computer. We didn't have one in the house at that time, so I know it was a PC and that is about as much information as I'm able to provide. <laughs> so it wasn't an Amiga then? No, no. You've got to remember the Amiga was actually the computer they were using on Nightmare. That was actually far better at the time um, at doing graphics than the PC was but once the Pentium arrived the PC just leapt forward and it soon overtook the Amiga yeah the Amiga was my dream computer for such a long time because I was very much a um, ZX Spectrum boy for most of the 90s <laughs> a ZX Spectrum oh I used to dream of having a ZX Spectrum <laughs> I had a ZX81 ZX81 <laughs> Yo, we're lucky. In our place, we had a Casio calculator in our pocket. <laughs> well, I say it was a ZX81. What it actually <laughs> was was a book with a tea towel on it. <laughs> <laughs> a tea towel? Paradise! We used to have to use a bit of used toilet paper to put over the top of our... You had a used toilet paper? I. We had an Oric. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we've gone a bit far there. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm going to get oh. so much hate from some of my retro gaming <laughs> friends for that comment. <laughs> so much for Welsh wizardry, Master. By the way, what is rugby? Well, it, it's a game, Pickle. And for now, our game's the only thing. And a new player enters the arena. So, enter. Ah, well, challenger, name yourself. I'm Vicky James. Vicky James, Vicky James. Well, she's come to the right place for a toasting, Master. I think not. You'd better call your advisors quickly. Sarah, Susanna, Katrina. 
Our next engineer introduces herself as Vicky James. Pickle says that she's come to the right place for a toasting. And can one of you please explain this joke to me? <laughs> because I don't get it. It just seems to be a complete and utter non sequitur. Mm. Is it because she's quite raven-haired? The only thing I could think is that he had just been sitting by the fire holding a sort of skewer and I, I wondered if either they'd edited something out or it was just a very tenuous reference to the fact that he was holding a skewer next to a fire. Vicky summons her advisors Sarah, Susanna and Katrina and says they all come from Wyndham. But uh, as Pickle rather needlessly points out it's spelt Wymontam. Leicester is spelt Leicester um, and nobody complains about it. Um, actually if you study Vicky um, as she calls in the team she doesn't half look irritated. I get the feeling she really isn't into this at all. There is a moment a bit later on and it's quite early in level one. She sounds quite irritated with her advisors as well. Absolutely. I think they tell her to shout if they see any goblins and yeah. she just said, well, you're going to have to tell me. Yeah. To be honest, I think any dungeon would sound a bit tired of getting a stupid instruction like that. But yeah, I think she sounds quite irritated and she definitely looks irritated all the time. I get the feeling they might have had an argument beforehand about which one should be the dungeoneer. She was hoping to be one of the advisors and Tim shouted, nope, you're being the dungeoneer. Traegard asked the advisors if they are Amazons. I'm assuming this is because they are actually quite tall. As a vegan, I was slightly uncomfortable with Sarah Bacon and Susanna Fish being in that team. But yeah. <laughs> but they're <laughs> alive. But they're alive. <laughs> they are. That's It's, it's that's living fine. bacon. <laughs> it's, it's living bacon. See, that's where the toasting gag could have gone in. Yeah, toasted fish. Mm. Toasted bacon. <laughs> Traegar puts the knapsack and the helmet on Vicky and sends her forth into the dungeon dimension. Are you ready, Vicky? Yes. Very well. Turn then. Face the dungeon door and step boldly forward. Where am I? You're in a room. There's um, sort of like mountains either side of you. There's a turning disc in the middle and you're on a sort of a walkway which leads in onto the disc and there's two other walkways. Look, Master, look, it's the place of choice. Yes, indeed. Now, listen, team, these are changing times and the dungeons you must conquer are changing with them. The quest you choose here will select a path for you to follow. But where it takes you, even I may not guess. So choose now. The quest to redeem the crowning glory or to find the shield of justice. Oh, the shield, Master. Make them choose the shield. It's their choice. Now keep quiet. <laughs> well, hey, don't you near with the helmet on your head? But you go for the cup of the crown instead of the sword of the shield because there's nothing in between. Oh, hey, but you're a don't be alive. But what buzz will get cause you harm? If you slip by the disc, you'll end up in the ravine. At the place of choice At the place of choice The place of choice At the place of choice The choices today are the crown in glory on the left or the shield just to the right and picky lobbles uh, lobbles the shield yeah, pick, picky and pickle. <laughs> this is the same as uh, Traegard and Pickle being trickle. Yeah, exactly. Uh, pickle lobbies for shield. And as usual, Traegard tried to interfering. As a sort of physical challenge, blindfolded, it, it's a tough thing to ask a team to do first up because there's such narrow paths coming off the disc. And 
compared to more or less everything they do for the remainder of level one and two, it's one of the hardest physical things they have to do. Where am I? You're in a sort of fortress and there's two walls either side of you and a drawbridge in front of you. In front of you there's a huge long drop. Can you sight? There's a talking face in front of you. No, I can't see it. Oh dear, oh dear. This is a sad story. Doors like these are beings which have been made spellbound. Having been made prisoners themselves, they make excellent jailers because they're not at all obliged to let anyone in or out. Normal keys don't work on them. There's only one thing that does, and that's the truth. Oh, by the way, this one, would you believe, is called Doris. Listen, team, the calling here is so easy even a goblin could remember it. All Vicky has to do is call out true and false, false and true, open up and let us through. Mm. Right, say tell, her. <laughs> tell her. Vicky, yeah. say to the face, true and false, false and true, open up and let us through. True and false, false and true, true, open up and let us through. Oh dear, oh dear, I hear, I hear. So it seems that the distortion has been permanently removed now. It's probably to make Terry Lofton's voice clearer. Today's questions are as follows. Fox originated in India and worshipped Kali, the goddess of destruction. True or false? They say false. Falsehood! Because I'm guessing they've never seen the Temple of Doom. The English word thug derives from the Hindi word hag, which means swindler or deceiver. Thugs were reported to Roman groups across the Indian subcontinent, acting as highway robber gangs, deceiving and later strangling their victims. To take advantage of their victims, the thugs would join them and acquire their trust, allowing them to surprise and strangle them with a handkerchief or rope. Then they would rob and bury their victims. As a result, the thugs were dubbed Banzigar, which means using a noose in southern India. And not at all accurately portrayed in Indiana Jones's world. The blue whale is the largest creature on earth. True or false? And they answer true, which is the correct answer. An adult blue whale can grow to be 30 metres long and weigh more than 180,000 kilograms, which is nearly the weight of one million bananas for our American followers. Do you think this question was inspired by having a team from Wales for the previous quest? No. Could it have been inspired by Prince Charles, then? No. There are 52 signs of the Zodiac. True or false? There's no facts about this, it's just false. Yeah, there's nothing really to say, is there? I used to write a horoscope page once upon a time. It was in the staff newsletter at a place I used to work. It was incredibly specific and impossible for multiple people to all have that same shared experience. It, it has to be vague and generic because otherwise, not only is it too easy to prove when it's wrong, but also there's so many different people with so many different lives who run to the same Zodiac sign. There was a very good BBC Two series years ago with Dave Gorman, where he followed his horoscope to the letter for like a month or so. And he's still alive? Yeah. So was he kind of obeying the instructions of the horoscope, or was he interpreting everyday events in light of the horoscope? He was obeying the instructions. He used three different horoscopes, and then he had a panel on the show who kind of reviewed his progress for the day, talked about his happiness and his financial well-being and stuff like that. Dr. Hilary Jones was on the panel and I think Judith Chalmers as well. Um, <laughs> so 
just a top quality panel. A real science background at every angle here. <laughs> One of the writers of the horoscope somehow cottoned on to what was going on and wrote this ridiculous thing where he had to balance on one leg whilst holding a bowl of cereal whilst, I don't know, whispering the Star Spangled Banner or something like that. And he did it. Sounds like a dolphin from Hitchhiker. Funnily enough, um, on the subject of uh, Douglas Adams writing, the Dirk Gently novels, the second of them, The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul, says that Dirk had a friend who actually wrote the horoscopes for uh, for a national newspaper and deliberately wrote Dirk someone just to wind him up. <laughs> he describes him as, you have a stupid hat and a really, really ugly coat. If you don't mind me asking, Paul, how did you write them? Did you actually look at the stars and... Oh, no, no, no. It was was just entirely works of fiction. And it was just as silly as possible until somebody senior noticed about three issues in and they they were swiftly (laughs) cancelled. But yeah, I just had a bit of fun with it. I'd have loved to read that. Yeah, I think the number of people who were instructed that at some point they were going to meet Charlie from Casualty was... um, (laughs) It it never came to pass. So, with two correct answers, the teams are granted access. Truth will out. Oh, yes. Truth will out. And so will you. They're on their way, Master. Certainly past the first obstacle, but by no means the last. Hurry, team, for there's a long journey ahead and precious little food to sustain you. Right, Vicky, take a side step to your right and now walk forward. Where am I? Right, you're in a room and there's a table and somebody's sitting at the table. And in front of you, there's a stool, and there's a fireplace over um, on the other side of the room. Caution, team. This warlock is Hordris the Confuser. In your terms, he's neither good nor bad, which means he may prove an ally or an enemy. Sit down, please. Mum will be with you in a moment. The more I think about it, the more I believe Hordris would have voted for Brexit. Yeah. Hordris is um, he's doing his bureaucrat thing again. It doesn't even matter where you find him. This is an inexhaustible supply of desks in <laughs> the dungeon for Hordris <laughs> to sit behind and an inexhaustible supply of quills. It's so strange because Traegard sort of introduces him as a warlock to be wary of and over the course of this series he just he seems to be there to highlight the sheer amount of admin involved in being <laughs> yes. a warlock. <laughs> this is partly where I got the idea from for Yes Dungeon Master. <laughs> there was so much potential wasn't there in season three it was genuinely quite sinister and intimidating he was a real anti-hero figure so you couldn't really tell whose side he was on and it was unpredictable what he would do in any given situation but in this he's just doing the paperwork while everybody else is doing the haunting Hordris asks for the dungeoner's name and Vicky gives it to him Pickle complains about her giving out her name willy-nilly, and then Hordris asks her age, and she replies that she's 14. Hordris tells Vicky that she doesn't stand much of a chance without his help, but by sheer chance, there's something that he wants that she could help him to acquire. This time, it's a potion that is apparently marked as his property. He tells Vicky that if she retrieves it, he will provide something to aid her on her journey. The team agree. And Hordra seals the deal by gifting her the ice shield. He gives his calling name Malefact and explains that she needs to repeat it three times once she has the potion in her possession. And now one must attend to other more urgent business, so uh, farewell. Well, they've obtained the ice shield, Master. Yes, indeed. A very valuable artifact, the ice shield. With it, Vicky may be able to see after a fashion, a distinctly magical fashion, therefore somewhat unreliable. Vicky, pick the shield up. That's it, Vicky, that's it. Slide it onto your arm. Have you got it underneath your arm? Yeah. 
sidestep to the right, yeah, left. <laughs> well, hold it up across Go. your chest. It may take some hold time it. to make best use of its powers. For it to work best, it must get used to its wearer. Right, Vicky. Walk ahead of you until I tell you to stop. Look, Master, the eye shield's working. Yes, it seems. Have a care here, humankind. This is the forest of Dun, and assassins lurk here. Other things, too, including the odd stray goblin. The assassins, though, are particularly nasty, and in some conditions, very difficult to spot. Yes, a nasty cult, the assassins. The only thing you can say in their favour is that they're terrible cowards. Face them out or even shout loudly and they'll usually withdraw. Show fear or let them creep up on you and it's... Precisely. Right, Vicky, did you hear that? Yeah, what's going on? Right, you're in a forest and there are goblins around which um, could harm you, but if you show fear, they'll... They will harm you. If you don't, then they'll cow away. So shout, go away, or something at them if they come up to you really loudly. Well, you better tell me when they come up to you. <laughs> yeah, right. The advisors seem to have slightly misunderstood what Treyguard has told them, but not to an extent that it should cause them any real trouble. We actually get a view of the Dungeoneer in the forest, face on for once. Notice how there is no sign whatever of the castle she has just left. <laughs> well, I don't think that's a continuity blunder. I think that is. A, I think that's a sign that the portal that took her away from Hordris is probably on an elf path. Now I'm going back to sleep because this is still <laughs> all the same as it was before. Yeah, same old passive path leads Vicky through the same old area, confusing the advisors. The same old tuft of grass in the middle of the path, and ending with them in the same old forest clearing. Except it actually isn't the same old clearing. <laughs> This is just serves to highlight how, how how little has to change in season four to to warrant a da da da. Yeah, it's, it's exactly <laughs> isn't it? We've had a surge of adrenaline from this. It's actually had a change of running order at long last. It's heavily modified, but this is actually normally the entrance to Ariadne's lair in season two. The webs and things have been removed, and they've added in the gnarled tree that is definitely recycled from the old clearing. But something different has happened. We actually got to the end of that bloody forest passive path, and it wasn't the same clearing. It's just a shame that it doesn't really make any difference because it's functionally the same. Where am I? Vicky, you're in a forest and there's something black in front of you. I can't make out quite what it is. Sarah, there's something else here. Vicky must be loud and bold. Shout, Vicky, really loud. Go away. Shout louder. Go away. Wave your arms around. Loud. Shout, shout, Vicky. Go away. It's gone now. Head quickly out. Walk forwards. Sidestep, stop. Sidestep to the left. Right. Left. Having dealt with the assassin and therefore the immediate threat, advisor Susanna seems to be having uh, trouble calming down from the uh, the tension. The, uh, the assassin that was hanging around as ever, is made to look absolutely pathetic and feeble and, and, and all complete wet pants because somebody shouted at it and it ran away. Do you not think that um, uh, Alistair in, earlier in this series set the bar very high in terms of sheer volume of shouting at an assassin? That's true. That is, that is true. That was... That no was... way! Because Vicky really didn't didn't quite hit that mark. No, no I, I, he actually seemed to have a higher pitched voice than she does. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I did think the eye shield kind of killed a possible moment of tension in this scene because 
one of the things I remember from that Alistair scene is that as he was, I think he was climbing into the well, and you start to see the assassin creeping back again. But this time we go into eye shield mode. The single most used bit of footage to, to portray someone walking to the portal in the entire fourth season as well. It was even used quite a bit in the fifth season. The assassin could be approaching from behind at this point, but you're never going to know. Susanna's continued panic probably isn't helped by Pickle telling the team to exit fast. She just continues to shout at Vicky, getting left and right confused. She displays a complete inability to stick to a single clear instruction and generally just gets panicked over nothing. And we do see that kind of a recurring theme when they ultimately meet their end, unfortunately. This team are actually worse at manoeuvring than Simon's by some way. Yeah, God knows what Tregard's thinking. But Tregard doesn't comment on it this time. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow, they do manage to move her on. This episode, apart from that one moment of sheer stupid brilliance, it's not a good episode. But it does give us a lot to talk about. It does, yeah. Which, in the end of the day, is more important. Well, for a podcast, it's everything. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it works for us. I'm just not sure it'll work for the audience in more general circumstances. Left or right? Choose your direction well, team. Right. Go forward. Keep going. Where am I? You're in a woods, and in front of you there's a cut-off tree, um, and on it there's some things. Can you see the things? I can see the tree. Right, um... Walk up to it. Walk up to tree. Stump. Stop. Oh, yeah. Can you see them? Yeah, there's some um, bread, a necklace, um, a jar of stealth. Of what? Stealth. Stealth. That might be special. And a key. Anyway, they arrive in Oakley's Glen next. On the stump today are a bread roll, a key, a necklace, and a jar marked stealth. Before Vicky can do anything, goblins suddenly appear. Susanna tells the dungeoneer to run. A pretty useless instruction to somebody who's blindfolded. The team then tell her to shout at the goblins, but this doesn't work. Fortunately, Oakley chooses this moment to make his presence known. Oh, quickly run, Vicky! Into the hole! Shout loud! Shout! Go away! Shout your right, Turn round! Turn round! Turn round, Vicky! Turn round! Turn round, Vicky! Leave, mold and bark! I abhor you gritty things from under rocks who comes. Be gone! Forest is too clean a place for you, dirt! Be gone, I says, or I crushes you. Turn round and face the tree, Vicky. Well, one danger has abated. But beware, team, this wooden giant isn't necessarily a friend. He has good reason to distrust humans even more than goblins. Hmm, Better, I'd say. Why, if you knew how many good spirits... Yes, 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 but not now, Pickle. What you want, wrecker, breaker, burner, poisoner... What you want here. Now, before we go any further, I want to ask you guys, I've called this a bread roll, but what do you guys call it? Around Manchester Way, um, it's called a butty. When I was down in Devon, we probably just called it a roll. Other people call it a bap. Yeah, I've heard all three sort of up in the, in the northeast roll about bread bun as well. But I've seen this question break the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think people just do it to sort of garner as many clicks and interactions as they can but they often will post a picture of a little alleyway between two buildings or there'll there'll be a a ginnel or a cut or whatever it is that people will call them and that usually generates a thousand different names for the same thing i love how oakley has made the west country accent macho (laughs) (laughs) the only other guy in the history of tv and films who's ever managed to make west country accents macho has to be dave prowse 
And even he got his voice edited out, actually, on the films themselves. I remember he came to our primary school once upon a time, Dave Prowse, because he was the Green Cross Code Man as well. well. That's what we actually remembered him as, because when he's playing Darth Vader, you don't see his face anyway. <laughs> yeah. The team impart a huge amount of information onto poor Vicky once without warning. Vicky, tell him you you don't mean any harm to him and you, you're you on a quest for justice. And that you're very grateful to him for saving you from the goblins. So she says the only thing that she can remember. We're very grateful. I really do think that this is one of those situations. Traegard's um, role in the series is actually starting to diminish slightly because a lot of the teams have watched Nightmare and so they don't need quite the same amount of guidance as they did in the first couple of years. This is one of those situations where I do think Traegard needed to intervene a bit and just get the team to calm down. They were slightly hung out to dry by the slow speed for Oakley to kind of manifest here as well because there was a period of time where they've literally just set upon by goblins and there wasn't any obvious exit. I do wonder whether that was done deliberately because um, they thought, actually, this panicky stuff is really entertaining. Let's hold <laughs> Oakley back a few more seconds. Shiny brown I is and good to taste. Green my jacket and prickly is my waist. What am I? By the way, that's a blatant lie by Oakley. They taste horrible, do chestnuts. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a fan either. Mm, me neither. Basically, though, here, Oakley is encouraging people to eat children. <laughs> no, not even children. Embryos. Yeah. Uh, that is a really, really disturbing way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> This guy is always telling me that I take things too far on this podcast, and he's just, oh, oh. I always get the blame. It's always me who gets the blame. And him, oh. I don't know if you ever saw Sausage Party with the baby carrots. Oh, God, yeah. They're eating children. Fucking <laughs> <Get> children. <laughs> and now I've just admitted to seeing Sausage Party. They got the answer right. Sits in a cup, but it's not an egg. Fruit of a tree, but best never eat. I think we have to uh, bring back the worst rhyme of the week award. It is, of course, Acorn is the answer, which uh, they get right. I think it's for the third one where they kind of know the answer very early on and just start shouting the answer over Oakley as he's trying to finish his text. And he gets proper Marty about it as well. He yeah. does. <laughs> he is really irritated. Sometime grey and sometime red, leaf and twig will make its bed. Collector, hoarder, scrounger too. Leaper, climber, now tell me who. The answer is squirrel. Fair play, they get three out of three. Yeah, feather in their cap. That's definitely their best moment so far. And then get absolutely zero help from Oakley as the reward. Because they've answered um, these rather easy riddles, Oakley suddenly trusts them and would happily hand over a can of uh, petrol to them and a box of matches and say, I'm absolutely certain you wouldn't set me on fire, even though I've got a hundred weight of goals hidden in my roots here. He trusts them but gives them no further advice. Yeah, so they do get the bread and then have an argument over whether it should be the necklace or the stealth. Seems like the key in the necklace. Do you think that there's an element of, if they're not given any help, is it feasible that they could have taken any two of the three and that there would have been a way to make it work? Most likely, I think. What we have here is actually something that should have been swapped over um, with the previous quest. Previous quest, they were given help, even though they didn't answer any riddles at all. Yeah. This team have answered riddles and they're given no help. Yeah. So surely the outcomes should be swapped over. They break what I refer to as Martin H's ice pack rule, which states that the more out of place the object, the more likely it is you're going to need it. I would agree with that as well, yeah. Named after a galvanized rubber ice pack that clearly had ice pack written on it with permanent marker, <laughs> <laughs> appearing in a, in a 15th century medieval setting. Leave the stealth on the key. Yes. The key and the necklace. Put it in, hold it and I turn round until we say stop. 
Turn around. Keep turning. Keep turning. Stop. Stop. Now onward and hold up the eye shield. Hold, hold up the me. eye shield. Keep walking until we tell you to stop. So, yet another passive pass brings us to, whoa, whoa, it's the Fortress of Doom again. What a surprise. But, before Vicky can get there... The end credits roll over a complete Life Force sequence, backed by the CGI Wellway Tunnel animation. This works quite well, I think. Yeah, it's sort of got two dimensions to it. So you've got the same sort of ending as you got late in Season 3, when the, the whole of the Life Force clock was shown over the credits, and I think it was Episode 14 or something. Now you've got the same thing, but the background's been altered to, uh, to make it look like there's a huge tunnel between worlds that you're passing through on the way to the afterlife. <laughs> it's still not a great episode but it's entertaining and it also has obviously that bit the entertainment pluses are a massive dungeoneer blunder early on and a very minor change to one clearing in the forest unless you're into warlock paperwork in which case it's another classic someone out there is into warlock paperwork <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately he appears to be the writer on nightmare <laughs> we've got a team that you have to say are now more interesting than the previous team although not for great reasons in terms of keeping their cool they appear to be the worst we've had all year um, I do find Vicky's apparent lack of enthusiasm a bit off-putting um, at the other extreme but I'm not sorry for the demise of Simon's bunch not because of the blunder but just because they are very monotonous speakers this is not vintage stuff by any stretch of the imagination but you get the feeling the crew were aware by this point that things had gotten very very stale, very quickly. Um, and they were at least trying a bit harder to shake things up a little. Doesn't mean they're really succeeding, but I appreciate they're trying. The thing with Simon's team is that we never really got a chance to find out how good they could have been. They were sort of led by the hand through 95% of their quest. And who knows, they maybe they could have been good if they were given a bit more freedom. If they were given a bit more freedom, they'd have more practice with manoeuvring. I think there is an argument to say that if you go back through the preceding three seasons of Nightmare, level one did give you a good opportunity to sharpen up your guidance skills, and now you've got the eye shield doing most of the work. You don't really have to do the left and right stuff very often, and... I dare say they'd only have to do it two or three times before they actually got to this room. There's a fair argument to be made that because floor puzzles are becoming scarcer and scarcer, when you actually meet one, you're not ready for it. Mm. So it becomes a massive problem at times in seasons uh, six and seven, where there's so few floor puzzles left that it really has become a fundamentally different story. Okay, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating and review on your platform of choice. It really helps us to grow our audience by reaching others who might be interested. You can follow us on Elon Musk's personal vanity platform. We're at Nightmare Pods, and our mastodon is topspicy.social slash at nightmarepod. I must admit, I do find the Twitter addresses a lot easier to navigate. If you want to support the podcast, we're NightmarePod on Patreon. Speaking of Patreon, here's a shout out to Keeper of the Book of Quests, David N. Rabbit, Paul McIntosh, I think we know him from somewhere, <laughs> uh, Peter Polsford, and Scott Evans. Advisors Benjamin Bloom, David Thompson, Kim Harder, which is a silly surname, Peter Sidon, and Paul Craddy. And, oh, and Dungeoneer Peter Courage. Imagining purposefully marrying someone with the surname Harder. She must have been hit on the head before <laughs> going up to the altar or something. Support us on Patreon at Dungeoneer level or above to get your name mentioned on the podcast. High level perks also receive merchandise, have access to exclusive episodes. And if you pledge as a keeper of the book requests, we'll even offer you the chance to be a guest on the podcast 
as with Paul McIntosh today. Our website is nightmarepod.co.uk. If you're looking for temporal discussion merchandise, including T-shirts, stickers, and other products, it's at nightmarepod.redbubble.com. And if you still live in the Internet Stone Age, you can still email us at podcast at nightmarepod.co.uk. And just keep telling yourself, it's only a podcast. Isn't it?